Hello, and welcome to the second episode of our Ashurst podcast series on energy and resources disputes. We are Tom Cummins and Mifanry Wood, and we're both partners in the dispute resolution team at Ashurst. In this series, we've been providing key updates and insights in relation to disputes in the energy and resources sector. And in this second episode of the series, we're going to explore ESG litigation. So we're going to ask, what is ESG litigation? Why is it currently in the spotlight? And probably most importantly, from a practical perspective, how should companies and investors prepare themselves in light of this new ESG litigation landscape? You're listening to Ashurst Legal Outlook. Now, Miff, I think probably the best place to start is to define for our listeners what we mean by ESG litigation. Thanks, Tom. No, I think that's right. Well, so ESG really is a broad umbrella term and the abbreviation stands for environmental, social and governance factors. So broadly speaking, it's to do with good corporate citizenship. ESG is often understood to be a framework for understanding just how sustainable a corporate's business is. So in other words, how focused it is on longer term benefits for the broader community and environment, in addition to the short term profit making. And when we're talking about ESG litigation, we're meaning litigation which arises out of ESG issues. And I just want to note that we're using the term litigation generically. We're not talking specifically about disputes resolved in a courtroom because, of course, disputes in relation to environmental, social and governance factors can take a form other than court proceedings. The most obvious example being international arbitration. Now, when it comes to the substance of these disputes, and if we take English law as an example, ESG disputes can arise from things such as, you know, claims brought in tort. So we're talking here about negligence, nuisance, conversion of property, uh, statutory claims. So this is claims, you know, that might be brought under a consumer protection legislation. We've got equitable claims. So this would be, you know, unjust enrichment, breach of fiduciary duties by directors or trustees. Uh, criminal claims, also administrative law claims. So these would be challenges to planning decisions or environmental permits and approvals. And then finally, we would look also at contractual claims. Um, So this is where, you know, ESG is becoming, you know, increasingly important and the ESG standards are likely to be incorporated into things such as supply agreements, manufacturing contracts, joint venture agreements. And so if you have a breach of one of those provisions in a contract, that would also fall under the ESG litigation umbrella. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe putting the contractual claims to one side, um, a question one might ask is who is usually or typically bringing ESG related litigation claims? As I think we've described, ESG litigation is a very broad topic. And so the answer to that question depends on the type of disputes you're looking at. But the classic ESG related claim is probably one brought by individual claimants or non-governmental organizations in relation to ESG issues and broadly falls into one or more of the following three categories. Firstly, you have private law claims where damages are sought. Then you have private law claims which are not trying to gain monetary compensation, but seeking to change a company or a state's behavior or bring about an alternative outcome. 
And finally, you have public law claims directed at administrative decision making. So, for instance, judicial review in England. And, and quite often when you get an ESG related issue, you get a mixture of these types of claims. Mm. And so but when you're speaking about the private law claims, so seeking damages, are they the, you know, the claims that we're talking about where, you know, a claim is being brought against a parent company, for example, for alleged harm caused by the subsidiaries? Yeah, that's that's a good example. I mean, that's an example of a private law claim that is brought in order to try to um, uh, win an award of damages. And so, for instance, in England, over the last few years, we've seen a real trend of claimants trying to recover damages from English-based parent companies alleging pollution or environmental damage or violations of human rights by the English company's subsidiaries in, in a particular jurisdiction. Um, and for instance, uh, the Longowe case, which went to our Supreme Court, involved a group of Zambian claimants bringing claims in tort against an English headquartered mining company and its Zambian subsidiary. And the allegations there were in relation to personal injury, damage to property, loss of income, et cetera, arising from discharges from a Zambian copper mine, which was owned and operated by the Zambian subsidiary of the, the UK parent. And the claimants in these cases typically based their claims against the parent on the level of control exercised by that parent over the activities of its subsidiary. And they say, look at the public statements of the parent company they evidence that the parent company is exercising that degree of control over what the subsidiary is doing. Um, so that's a very distinctive category of claims in this particular area. I think it's probably also worth just mentioning claims arising from reporting and disclosure obligations by companies. We've already seen ESG risks giving rise to shareholder activism. You have shareholders seeking to hold companies to account and to influence the behavior of companies through their general meetings. But you also may have litigation if, for instance, investors suffer a financial loss on their investment. And this is an area where, if we use a little bit of jargon, you often hear this term greenwashing. So companies making themselves more appear more environmentally friendly or more ESG friendly than they actually are. And misleading investors in this way can lead to litigation against companies. Now, the final point I just wanted to mention in, in this section of the, of the podcast is climate change litigation. And this is probably what people think about when you mention ESG litigation. But hopefully one of the key points that we're, we're getting across to our listeners is that ESG litigation is much broader than climate change issues. I think it's fair to say the conventional view amongst English lawyers is that claims seeking damages for the consequences um, uh, in relation to climate change caused by companies are going to be difficult as a matter of English law, unless you can prove to some evidence of a direct connection between what the company's been doing and the harm that the claimant has suffered. And that's simply because any claimant would face significant evidential difficulties attributing the harm that that claimant has suffered to the defendant's actions. And that is the case, even though recent years have seen pretty significant developments in causation and attribution science, which might be thought to help claimants making out claims of this nature. So that's just a, a series of examples of archetypal damages claims that you get in this space. Um, Mif, why don't you say a word or two about claims which 
are directed less at financial compensation, but more at changing the behavior of companies. Thanks, Tom. Um, I think a really good example of this. So what we're talking about here is where a claim is not specifically brought to obtain damages, but it's, it, it is seeking to change the company or, or an entity's behaviour. Um, it was a case that was, was actually handed down in May this year, so 2021. And it was in the Hague District Court of the Netherlands. And it's potentially a very significant judgment for the development of ESG litigation. So the claim was brought against an international oil company by various pressure groups. And the court ruled that the multinational must, resu must reduce sorry, its net CO2 emissions by 45% by 2030, compared to 2019 levels, and to zero by 2050, in line with the Paris Climate Agreement. Now, the claim was brought on the basis of human rights law. And I just want to note here that it was a Dutch court that was very much considering human rights implications for the specific Dutch claimants. Regardless of this, it does seem likely that we will see an increase in such claims in the future. Um, and I'd note also, it's, it's, it's a really interesting space to watch here because the oil company has recently confirmed that it will appeal this judgment. So I, it's a bit of a, a watch this space, but I don't think that takes away from the fact that these type of claims are probably going to, you know, increase uh, worldwide. I, I think that's right, Miff. I think I think that can only be a trend that we see in this area, and it's probably also worth mentioning as uh, as an overview of the final category of claims is public law claims which are directed at administrative decision making by public bodies, for instance, judicial reviews of the sort we've seen in England. And I think in, in this jurisdiction, in England, this category of litigation has been the most prevalent when it comes to ESG related um, claims. And to give an example of that, not from the energy sector, but from the infrastructure sector is the judicial review claim, which was brought by um, a non-governmental organisation in relation to the UK's policy regarding a, a third runway at our Heathrow airport. And in that case, the, the High Court initially held that the government had breached its duty under planning law by failing to consider climate change factors. But the Supreme Court, our highest appellate court, ultimately concluded that the government had acted rationally and in compliance with its legal obligations, meaning that Heathrow Airport is able to go ahead and apply for development approval for that third runway. And in the energy sector, we've seen similar claims arising from the UK government's strategy in relation to oil and gas, less advanced than the Heathrow claim, but, but we have seen them. And those claims have been both focused on domestic oil and gas production, but also internationally. So for instance, challenges to the UK providing export finance for the, the development of gas uh, resources overseas. And even when these claims are unsuccessful and don't result in a positive judgment for claimants, they tend to attract publicity and involve considerable legal expense. Mm. And I think now's probably a good time because the examples that we've given have, have really been focused on, on you know, environmental issues and climate change. But as we've said, a number of times now, it is a misconception that ESG matters are, you know, all about climate change. And, and whilst environmental issues are very important, we also can't lose sight of, you know, the social issues and governance issues, which are equally as important in the ESG landscape. So just to kind of round things off, it's probably a good time just to, you know, run through what these issues may be. 
So if we're talking about social issues, this would include things like uh, working and safety conditions, um, human rights infringements, diversity and inclusion, consumer protection, modern slavery, you know, and, and the list can kind of, you know, increase and, and I, I suspect it will over the, over the next few years. The next uh, category would be governance issues. And this might include things such as anti-bribery and corruption practices or financial crime. Um, also data protection, and then obviously directors' duties and corporate reporting obligations. And just to note again, and we've said this a few times just in the overlapping kind of ESG litigation, there is considerable overlap between the three ESG branches when it does come to litigation. So just because there might be an issue with governance doesn't exclude there also being an issue with, you know, an environmental concern or a social issue concern. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I wanted to pick up what you said about the S of the ESG and, and in particular your reference to human rights issues and a trend we have seen in our practice when we've been advising clients on these issues in, in the past year or so even has been an increasing focus on human rights issues and their implications for businesses. And 2021 marks the 10-year anniversary of the UN endorsement of its guiding principles on business and human rights. And these principles are a really good place to start when considering the impact of business activities on human rights. What they do is provide a framework for corporate human rights responsibility anchored around three pillars. So protect, states have an obligation to protect human rights. Respect, corporates must respect human rights and remedy. So there must be an access to remedy for victims of human rights violations by businesses. And wh where this becomes relevant for clients in the energy and resources sector is that multinational companies frequently refer to those guiding principles when they are promulgating human rights policies and codes of conduct. And the principles themselves are guiding principles, as the name suggests. They're not legally binding obligations. But because companies adopt them, they're often relied by relied on by claimants in um, in ESG litigation in this space. And the claimants say, "Look, the principles reflect the standards of behaviour which you have voluntarily agreed to exhibit." And tort claims like the, the Zambian litigation we discussed earlier, where claims were brought against the UK parent company in respect of activities in Zambia. And one of the things that claimants look at is the UN guiding principles and the extent to which parent companies have said, we're going to comply with these. These form a, a fundamental part of our, of our human rights policy. I think it's when we're talking about these guiding principles, it's probably a good point now just to talk perhaps about, you know, the alternates to court litigation. Because, um, for example, I, you know, we've got the operational grievance mechanisms. Um, which are the mechanisms that are recommended by the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. And they perform two key functions. So, you know, in, in the first instance, they support the identification of adverse human rights impacts as part of an enterprise's ongoing human rights due diligence. And in the second instance, they make it possible for grievances once identified to be addressed and for adverse impacts to be remediated early and directly by the business enterprise. So we refer to them as OGMs and they're often established by companies to enable grievances to be addressed without the need for the formal judicial process. And while we're kind of on the subject, another acronym in this space is NCP which means national contact points. 
And NCPs are set up by governments which have agreed to implement the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises. And an interested party can file a complaint with a relevant NCP. And the NCP then makes an initial assessment. And if the complaint is accepted, it then seeks to negotiate a settlement between the interested party and the company. Now, NCPs are not able to impose penalties on companies, but may publish details of the complaint and the NCP's assessment of it, which can lead to adverse publicity or can even be picked up, you know, in, in future litigation, for example. And then finally, just to kind of touch on, on my example at the beginning of this podcast about the role of international arbitration, I think a, a really good example of this is the Hague Rules on Business and Human Rights Arbitration, which were launched in The Hague in 2019. And now these provide for the administration of arbitrations arising from human rights disputes. And the rules themselves are based on the unsuitable rules of arbitration, but are really tailored to reflect the nature of human rights disputes. And they were put together actually following the disputes that arose, you might remember in 2013, the Rana Plaza garment factory collapse in Dakar, where global fashion brands, retailers and trade unions concluded an accord on fire and building safety in Bangladesh. And this actually led to the disputes being resolved by confidential arbitrations and specifically arbitrations against two fashion brands which were heard in The Hague and which actually settled in 2018. So, Tom, with all of this, I suppose the really obvious question is what can companies and entities really do in this, you know, ESG landscape to, to help mitigate the risk of any ESG litigation? Yeah, I think that's right. We've obviously provided quite a canter through the legal landscape. It's, it's a vast and, and multifaceted topic, but trying to zero in on some practical takeaways. I had a number of points I wanted to make. Number one is, I think for GCs, lawyers, risk risk advisors in companies, be across the activities of your company. You know, look at what the company is doing, where do the risks exist, and don't confine this analysis to the immediate company's activities. Look at the activities of subsidiaries, contractors, anybody who is in the supply chain, because ESG litigation risk can arise at, at any of those points. Point two, and, and related to the first point, is try to regularly conduct risk assessments across the business. As we know, risk assessments always lie at the heart of managing risk, ensuring that compliance is, is well thought through, and ensure that those risk assessments are tailored to the particular jurisdictions in which a business has its operations. Point three is monitor closely legal developments in particular jurisdictions in which the business operates. There may be case law, there may be other legal developments that suggest a, a direction of travel that may be relevant to developments in ESG litigation risk. Point four is keep an eye on and consider the potential cast of participants in ESG litigation and their different agendas. So you might have claimants that are affected directly or indirectly by a company's operations. You might have investors in a company um, that might bring claims, counterparties to contracts that might bring ESG-related claims. You have NGOs and pressure groups. And finally, you have third-party funders who are active in this area and may be ready to finance damages claims against companies in, in return for a share of any judgment against the company. Point five is anticipate and be prepared for regulatory and legal change. 
there's only likely to be more legislation in this area, which increases the risk of litigation and, and enhances the need for, for companies to be actively preparing themselves. An example of that, touching on the human rights theme, is that the EU is working on mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence legislation, which is expected to enter law in the next couple of years and will have a significant impact on the way companies with a connection to the EU um, address these sorts of issues. Finally, point six, think creatively and strategically about resolving these claims if you are caught up in ESG litigation. I, I think in the same way that claims may differ from the type of litigation companies have previously faced, so may the paths to resolution. And any settlement should really bear in mind both the litigation aspects of a dispute, but also the broader ESG concerns that come out of um, ESG issues being raised. So damage to the reputation of a company, access to capital uh, for a company. Can you, can you recruit the best and the brightest if you're associated with negative ESG publicity? Um, you know, do, do customers, do consumers have an issue with your brand if you're associated with, it, with ESG issues? So it's not it's not a pure um, litigation analysis, a zero-sum game of win or lose. It's quite a lot more complicated than that. These are really good points, Tom. And what we really need to be emphasising is that ESG issues are something all entities and corporates should be monitoring carefully. The cost to companies of getting ESG wrong are high, potentially resulting not only in financial damage, but also reputational harm affecting the entire business. Even if a claim is ultimately unsuccessful, any threat or action taken against a company can have lasting reputational consequences. So really, companies should be thinking about their ESG strategy now and not waiting until a litigation threat is present to take action. Thank you for listening. This was part two of our dedicated mini-series exploring energy and resources disputes. To hear more Ashurst podcasts, including our dedicated channel on all things ESG, please visit ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. To ensure you don't miss future episodes, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. And while you're there, please feel free to keep the conversation going. Leave us a rating or a review. Thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.